So this is Joshua chapter 9. If anyone's got a Bible, it'd be good to read it. Okay. Um, it's just continuing on the theme that, uh, on Joshua about privileges and responsibility. And uh, in particular, Joshua chapter 1 and verse 7, which says, Be strong, be courageous, be careful to obey all the law of my servant Moses that gave you. Don't turn from it to the right or the left, that you may be successful wherever, wherever you go. Don't let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so you may be careful to do everything written in it. Okay, and now let's read chapter 9. Now, when all the kings west of Jordan heard about these things, which was uh, the defeat of Ai, a city, those in the hill country, in the western foothills, and all along the entire coast of the Great Sea, as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, they came together to make war against Joshua and Israel. However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. They put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, We've come from a distant country, Make a treaty with us. The men of Israel said to the Hivites, But perhaps you live near us. How then can we make a treaty with you? We are your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asked, Who are you, and where do you come from? They answered, Your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we've heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt, And all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Sihon, king of Heshbon, Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth, and all our elders and those living in our country said to us, take provisions for your journey, go and meet them and say to them, we're your servants, make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day we left to come to you, but now see how dry and moldy it is. And these wineskins that we filled were new, but see how cracked they are. And our clothes and sandals are worn out by the very long journey. The men of Israel sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by an oath. Three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbors living near them. So the Israelites set out, and on the third day came to their cities, Gibeon, Kephira, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. And the whole assembly grumbled against the leaders. But all the leaders answered, we've given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. This is what we'll do to them. We'll let them live so that wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. They continued, Let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for the entire community. So the leader's promise to them was kept. Then Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said, 
Why did you deceive us by saying we, have, we live a long way away from you, while actually you live near us? You're now under a curse. You will never cease to serve as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and to wipe out all its inhabitants from before you. So we feared for our lives because of you, and that is why we did this. We are now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right to you. So Joshua saved them from the Israelites, and they did not kill them. That day he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the community and for the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose. And that is what they are to this day. Okay, interesting story. And I headed up self-reliance, a warning to leaders. And so uh, when I was preparing this, I, I, as always, I suppose, I just felt really nervous and worried, thinking, I fit in this category. I like to think the best of people. I tend to believe what they say. And then, oh, huge mistake and brought trouble. But as I've studied it, I've seen there's more than one perspective to this. So... I'm going to unfold that and see where we go. So the context, first of all, is that we've just looked in the the last time I spoke from chapter 7 onwards about judgment on AI, and judgment in particular on Achan, Achan, one person who coveted it and brought um, God's anger to burn against Israel. And we learned how the Lord turned from his anger through an act of judgment that Achan had to die. And I suggested that this is a graphic image of the voluntary sacrifice of Jesus, who was cut off from the land of the living and for the transgression of his people. He was stricken so that we could live. Um, Jonathan Berg came up to me afterwards, actually, and uh, said, I had a lovely story from my dad once, who said, what's the safest place to be in a fire? And the answer is, where the fire's already burned. And by stepping into the sacrifice of Jesus, judgment is taken. I thought it was a really good image. So thank you, Jonathan, for that. And after that, we read in uh, the end of chapter 9 onwards, or is it 8? I can't remember now. Anyway, they they renew the covenant. It's chapter 8. They renew the covenant. So it says that... uh, Joshua copied on the stones the whole law of Moses. And everyone, including the foreigners, stood beside the ark, facing those who carried it. And Joshua read the whole law, the blessings and the cursings. And there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and children and the foreigners who lived amongst them, in verse 35 of chapter 8. So after this amazing learning about God's anger and wrath and it being lifted, they renewed the covenant and reminded themselves what God had promised. And then we come to chapters 9 and 10. And they need to be read together. In the last, in the story of Ai, the verse, the beginning of the chapter was about God's wrath. And it ended by God's wrath being lifted. And here, at the verse, chapter 9, at the beginning of chapter 9, if you read the first two verses, it says this. 
Now, when all the kings west of Jordan heard about these things, those in the hill country in the western foothills along the entire coast of the Great Sea and so on and so on, they came together to make war against Joshua and Israel. And so what bookends these two chapters, if you like, is enemies and warfare and battle. And if you go to the end of chapter 10, it says this. And Joshua captured all the kings on their land at one time because the Lord, of God, the Lord God fought for Israel. And Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. So this section is bookended by warfare and enemies and difficulty. And in verse 1 of chapter 9, we started there, and it says that they wanted to declare war. They'd heard of what God has done, and they declared war. But in chapter 5, it's almost exactly the same wording, but then they didn't declare war because they were afraid, and their hearts sank, and they had no courage to face the Israelites. So something had changed as far as these enemies were concerned. From chapter 5 to chapter 9, suddenly they seemed to have courage. And I wonder why that was. And I suggest it may be because they saw the defeat at Ai. And how when we make, get things wrong, actually, it gives the enemy a foothold and gives the enemy courage, if you like, saying, oh, they're, they're fallible after all. So this is a story of redemption, actually. They had a mind to fight. And then in verse 3, we have the however. (laughs) When the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. Okay, so where's Gibeon? Uh, It's five or six miles northwest of Jerusalem, so the archaeologists and so on think. It's about 20 miles away from Gilgal, to the west of Gilgal. So it wasn't that far away. And we read in chapter 10, it was an important city, one of the royal cities. It was bigger than Ai. And also we read in uh, chapter 9 later on, that as we read it earlier, there's Gibeon and Kephira and Beeroth and Kiriath, whatever it is, all these places. So it's more than a city. It's more like a little cluster of, of cities, a region, if you like. And it was three days' journey to get from one to the other, we read in verse 16. And you have to applaud their craftiness. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? And the scripture takes its time to, to show you the story. This ruse. They thought, we haven't got a hope. We're afraid for our lives. What should we do? Well, let's, let's find really old clothes and cracked wineskins and moldy bread, and let's go and say, oh, we're so, such a long way away. They were really clever. They had it to a fine art. You notice that in their words, they didn't mention, for example, we've heard about Jericho and Ai. Because if they said that, then, then the Israelites would have twigged that they actually haven't been traveling very long. <laughs> so they said, oh, we've heard of what happened in Egypt and we were afraid of your God. So they were very crafty. It must have been a very easy story to swallow. They lied through their teeth. (laughs) But a bit later on, I'm going to look at their motivation. And then we get to verse 14, which is the kind of tragedy in this chapter. Chapter 9, verse 14, when it says... The men of Israel sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. That's the verse that worries me. (laughs) 
Because so often, if you're like me, you rely on your own understanding, discernment, intellect, whatever it is, and just don't take the time to think, God, what are you saying here? One of the things I really appreciated going out with the treasure hunting guys yesterday, because I've not done it before, was you prayerfully go out, and then you spend the time walking around, and you observe, and you think, God, what are you saying? Is there someone to talk to? What are those things you showed us? And I find it such a helpful exercise, because it stops you being the person you normally are, and just rushing along to Waitrose, or Aldi, depending on who you are. Um, Was it that Israel was self-confident after AI? Was it they'd enjoyed a period of peace, actually, and had lost sight of the fact that there was an enemy? Were they just plainly too busy to turn to God? They're the questions I ask myself. And whose responsibility was it? We read in Numbers, if you want to look it up later, if you, there's some notes, uh, which are, they're on a, can you just hold a yellowy piece of paper up there, that color, if you want to sort of look at these later. In Numbers 27, it says this, the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, a man in whom is the spirit of leadership, and lay your hand on him. Have him stand before Eliezer the priest and the entire assembly and commission him in their presence. Give him your authority. He is to stand before Eliezer the priest, who will obtain decisions for him by inquiring of the Urim before the Lord. The Urim was like stones, I think it was, wasn't it? Where it was the way you sought God's mind if you didn't understand what to do. So if Joshua didn't know what to do, it had been commanded what he should do. He should go to the priest and get the priest to pray, to get wisdom. And he didn't do it. And that's a sobering thought, isn't it? Sobering thought for all of us, perhaps particularly those in leadership, when we feel we have to make decisions. You'll find a little leaflet at the back. Where is it? It's got a picture of a foot on it. And a verse, a good little memory verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Looking to God for wisdom is not weakness, but an act of faith. And would to God that I and we did it more. However, in self-reliance, they made this treaty and ratified it by an oath. And then in verse 16, we have this shocking realization the Israelites heard they were neighbors and lived near them. And my cry when I read this, oh God, the leadership's got it wrong. <laughs> They've turned away from your ways. Help us, God. My cry for me and for us in leadership. Help us, God, from just leaning on our own understanding. But there's an interesting turn of events now. It's very clear that the Israelites then went to this place and wanted to wipe out the Gibeonites. In verse 26, we read, Joshua saved them for the Israelites so they didn't kill them. So there was an anger, there was a frustration that the leadership had got it wrong, and they grumbled against the leaders. 
what did the leaders do? Thank God they didn't just give up. They took responsibility and they looked back to God's ways. What actually happened here? It says they'd entered into an oath. The word is covenant. It's exactly the same word as we read of God's covenant. They had entered into a covenant before God to these people to show them peace. And they thought, we have to honor that because we've done it before God and we will fear God rather than all the congregation that we are leading, the whole assembly. We fear God. We've made a covenant with these people. We must honor it. And if you see what they did and do a bit of study, you'll realize that what they did actually is go back to the Word of God. And they did what they should have done in these circumstances. Although they'd made an error, they then went back to what was right. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, it says this. When the Lord God brings you into the land you're aiming to possess and drives out before you the nations, Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, etc., 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 and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, you must destroy them totally, make no covenant with them, show them no mercy. Don't intermarry with them, don't give your daughters for their sons or their, their daughters for your sons, for they'll turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and destroy you. This is what you're to do. Break down their altars, smash the sacred stones, cut down their god poles and burn their idols. For you're to be a people holy to the Lord your God. So had they disobeyed, That section ends, he is the faithful God who keeps his covenant of love in chapter 7 of Deuteronomy. I think if they'd read this, they might have thought, well, had God delivered them into our hands at that point or not? (laughs) It says, when they are delivered to you and you've defeated them. So maybe they thought, well, maybe we haven't. But it also says later on in Deuteronomy chapter 20, When you march to attack a city, make its people an offer of peace. If they accept and open their gates, all the people in it shall be subject to labor and shall work for you. And in chapter 29 of Deuteronomy it says, they shall chop your wood and carry your water. And if they refuse to make peace and engage you in battle, lay siege to that city and destroy it, basically. So it's interesting. It seems to me that although they recognized they've made a mistake, they turned back to think, what does God say? What's his heart, actually? And so we read in verse 20 and 21 that the leaders advise the Gibeonites they're now going to cut wood and collect water. But in verse 23, Joshua goes a bit further because he says when he talks to the Gibeonites... You're now under the curse. You will never cease to serve as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. (laughs) Why is that? 
Because the woodcutters, their purpose was to cut the wood for the altars in the house of God. And the water carriers, their purpose was to bring the water of purification to the house of their God. The whole reason why the Israelites were not to make league with other nations was they would be drawn into their worship and worship their idols. And so what did Joshua do? He said, okay, you people have made peace with us. You're now going to serve my God in the temple by helping with these things. He discipled them, if you like. I think that's wonderful. And what about the motivation of the Gibeonites? I find it really interesting, looking back over this chapter that we've read, there's no record here of threats of violence or the desire to pick a fight or to kill anybody. And so in verse 24, Joshua says, why did you deceive us? And they replied in verse 24, your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and wipe out his inhabitants before you. So we feared for our lives because of you, and that's why we did this. I find that really interesting. They came, I I had to change my mind as I studied this and think, were they that evil? Or actually, had they seen something of God and thought, we fear this. We would rather serve a God like that and a nation like that, than enter into battle. Which is in complete contrast to all the other kings we read of in chapter 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And interestingly, in Nehemiah, you read that the Gibeonites were some of those that helped build the wall of Jerusalem. It's like they became incorporated into the people of God through the sheer grace of God and were included in his chosen people. Isn't that wonderful? (laughs) Even though there had been a big mistake by the leadership, I'm not trying to excuse that, and I can't add it all together, I can't say I can explain it all, but isn't it amazing how God somehow had seen the heart of this people and so engineered it so that they were saved Isn't that wonderful? The mercy of God. Chapter 10. We read of these nations again. Adonizak, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and so on and so on and what they'd done and that Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel while living near them. He and his people were very much alarmed at this. Actually, it means they feared greatly (laughs) because Gibeon was an important city. So the king of Jerusalem and the others, they said, come on, we're going to attack Gibeon. So the five kings went to war against Gibeon. So here's the story gets deeper. They've made a peace treaty with these people and now the people turn around and say to Joshua, come and help us. We're being attacked. Will your servants come to our aid? Wonderfully, they did. <laughs> and then, I'm just, 
amazed that in verse 8 we read this. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid. I've given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. And as I was looking at this, I looked back and I thought, what have I read in the previous chapter? I haven't read about God doing anything. If you read through Joshua, God says, I will do this. I will do that. I will deliver them into the hands. Do this. Do that. Keep the law. And then the chapter we've just read, chapter 9, we hardly hear about God doing anything. He's silent. Why is that? And then all of a sudden, we come to chapter 10, when mercy's been shown, and God's will has been done, and we hear God is on the move again. And it says, the Lord said to Joshua, in verse 8, verse 10, the Lord threw them into confusion. Verse 11, the Lord hurled large hailstones down from the sky to defeat them, and more died from the hailstones than were killed by the sword of the Israelites. Verse 12, on that day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel. And verse 14, surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. And we get this amazing story about the sun standing still, which is just incredible. Um, And I've been trying to find out what actually happened and read various commentaries on that, and nobody really knows. (laughs) But what we do know is that Joshua prayed publicly in front of the whole nation, sun stand still so we can do God's work properly. And it says the day was lengthened almost for a full day. There's never been a day like it when the Lord listened to the voice of a man. Now, I don't know what happened. We know now, by science, that if the sun had stood still, a few things would have gone wrong on the earth. (laughs) Uh, Perhaps they'd have flown off it. We just, you know, it's a job to understand, isn't it? And would Joshua have prayed that if he'd known that actually the sand didn't go around the earth at all, but the other way around, the sun didn't go around the earth? Would he have prayed it? He probably wouldn't have had the faith, would he? But he prayed it, and something happened that was unbelievable and has never happened since. And I don't know what it's like, but when I get to heaven, if I find out that actually the sun did stand still, and by the amazing wonder of God, everything still carried on, I'll laugh. (laughs) Because no one believes that. I'll probably be ashamed as well that I didn't believe it either. But isn't it amazing what God did? To save a people who came out of fear and said, God, we'll be your servants rather than fight you. We'll just be your servants. It's like heaven had to rejoice. (laughs) Because God loves all nations. And I hear, often hear criticism of Joshua, the book of Joshua, saying, oh, it's all bloodthirsty and how they go in and smash everything to bits and they've got to destroy everything. I read the opposite in this chapter. I read that God's longing for people who don't know him and who are prepared to say, yes, I've heard about you and I'll come and serve God. It turned the whole story upside down for me. It's like God was just overjoyed at triumphant grace. (laughs) Even though it all started by an accident. Amazing. There are so many stories, aren't there, in the Old Testament where everything just seems to get turned on its head, like we read of Rahab a few weeks ago. The one who should have been destroyed, the one who was 
an alien, didn't, wasn't brought up in a godly atmosphere, all this kind of thing. Her trade wasn't the best. But she believed God, and she was utterly saved with all her family. And now we hear of all these Gibeonites saved because they feared God. And if we go to the New Testament, we read lots of occasions, don't we, when people bow the knee. It says in Philippians, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We've been reading then in Joshua about how God says, I will do these things. I will give you this land. I want you to bless the nations. I want you to be the people through whom my blessing comes in the whole world. Those were the promises. I will do it, says God. And that's the promise. And we started with the enemies making war. Did the leadership slip up? Yes, they did. Were they rebelling against God, the leadership? I don't think they were. I think they made an error. Is this a story of grace? It certainly is. What difference does that make to you and me? We learn that God's a God of covenant. We learn here that when God promises something, he does it. Do you believe that? When it gets tough and he's made a promise to you, do we believe it? (laughs) And what about those that don't know him? Jesus says, unless you repent, you'll all perish. Hmm. And it says in Acts, repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you'll receive the gift, the promise of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and all your children and all who are far off. Everyone who calls on our God. (laughs) What a promise is that? Isn't it wonderful? It includes the children, which is the thing that they were told to be wary of. <clears throat> I feel like a broken record sometimes getting up here doing this series because I'm saying the same old thing. But my passion is God has commanded the church to be about his business. He's charged us to be in the world to bring good news. And to show that God is a God of love and forgiveness and reconciliation. And he's made a promise that anyone who turns like these Gibeonites and says, well, I fear this God. I'll just be a servant. I'll do anything. Just keep me alive. God loves that. And he'll give his whole being, his spirit. He'll let the the sun stand still for that and say, I love you. You're forgiven. We're charged with that message. 
And that troubles me. <laughs> I've been reading this little book this week by uh, Simon Gullibaud. <clears throat> There's a chap called, um, what was his name? Robert Murray McShane. He died when he was 29. But before he died, Scotland was shaken to its core with people turning to Christ. And someone was inquiring about him and went on a bit of a pilgrimage to find out how, where his power came from. So he went to the church and asked the sexton of the church, would you mind telling me what was the secret behind Robert Murray McShane's work? So the sexton led him to McShane's former study and invited him to sit in the great man's chair. And the sexton then said plainly, Now, drop your head on that book and weep. Because that's what he did before he preached. No wonder God saved so many through him. William Booth says this, the call is to everybody. The call, the promise, it's to everybody. It's not leadership, it's to you and me, all of us, the call. William Booth said, not called, did you say? Not heard the call? I think you should say. Put your ear down to the Bible and hear him bid you go and pull people out of the fire. Put your ear down to the burdened, agonized heart of humanity and listen to its pitiful wail for help. Go, stand by the gates of hell and hear the damned entreat you to go to their father's house and bid their brothers and sisters and servants and masters not come there. Which is quoting Jesus, isn't it? Then look Christ in the face, whose mercy we profess to obey, and tell him whether you would join heart and soul and body and circumstances in the march to publish his mercy to the world. It's so easy to cruise along life in the largely apathetic and disengaged way from its spiritual needs, let alone the physical needs of those we come into contact with. We don't want to risk treading on toes, offending, getting rebuffed or rejected. And we fall for one of Satan's greatest lies. Don't worry about it. Leave it for now. There's always time. I've said it every week. I believe there's an urgency. I really do. (laughs) And I guess I'm going to carry on saying it. I think there's an urgency. Because that's what I feel when I've been studying this. I can't get away from it. There's an urgency. And we've been hearing stories of people out there who just are open. If we've got the courage to maybe take a risk, maybe look stupid, but actually discover that God is at work in the world around us. Isn't that true? It is true. 
We're going to break bread. I don't want to do this as a kind of ritual. It's not even the right circumstances. They did it over a meal. <laughs> it was all very different. It was on the Passover day. It was before Jesus' crucifixion. But what I do want to do by doing this is to remember why we're doing it. It was to remember there was a covenant. It's to remember that Jesus died to save sinners like you and me. He was broken for us. His blood was poured out for us. And I don't know about you, but my confession is I can go up and you can feel a bit sort of holier because you do it or something. But actually, it's for the world, (laughs) isn't it? And by doing this, we're remembering so that we go into our week thinking, God, you love people. You've entered into a covenant for everyone in this world. Anyone who will fear you and cry out for mercy.